Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Tablets of sweetmeats, which were made for her by her apothecary, who also supplied pounds of cloves, These were for flavouring and probably for medicinal use. The apothecary also mixed cordials for the Queen to drink. The wine served at the royal table had usually been imported from Gascony, France or the Rhine area and had to be drunk young. Ale was the drink of the masses, for water was generally considered to be suspect, and the household book reveals that the Queen and her retinue drank gallons of it. Isabella did drink water, for she owned two silver water pitchers, but it was probably boiled first. Hippocras, or spiced wine, was sometimes served at the end of a meal. Isabella liked to dress fashionably, and introduced French styles of costume that were so widely copied that her influence on fashion could still be detected in the middle of the 14th century. Details of Isabella's clothes appear in her wardrobe accounts, which survive for the period 1314 to 15. Her tailor, John de Falaise, employed 60 workmen for making, maintaining, beating, cleaning and repairing her clothes. The Queen's household books record payments to him for such items as four pounds of silk of various colours for stitching robes, 14 pounds of thread, silk fastenings, and four dozen hooks for robes and mantles. In 1311-12, to he supplied 15 robes, 30 pairs of stockings, 36 pairs of shoes, three cloaks, another cloak of tyrtain or linsey-woolsey, a blend of wool and linen imported from Florence, six hoods, six bodices, a pelican of triple cinden, heavy satin or linen and a tunic of silk stuff known as tartarum cloth of Luca. He also made all the hangings for the Queen's Chapel. Small wonder, then, that he and his busy team were supplied with 30 pounds of candles so that they could work through the dark winter evenings. Isabella popularised the sideless sickless, or surcoat, which was worn over the undergown and was trimmed with fur or other decoration around the edges. She also affected the pelican, a voluminous fur-lined mantle with slits in front for the arms. Isabella wore hers with a great cowled hood falling over her shoulders, as depicted in a manuscript illustration of her with her son Edward in the Bodleian Library, Oxford. This same picture shows her wearing a crown and a diaphanous gauze veil over netted cauls. She has abandoned the chin barb, shown in other representations of her. Isabella and her ladies also set a trend for gowns which were lower cut than had been seen for centuries. Isabella needed little excuse to order new clothes or jewels, and each notable occasion was marked by the purchase of a new chaplet of gold. One particularly beautiful example was set with rubies, sapphires, emeralds, diamonds and pearls. When she attended the wedding of one of her damsels, 
Catherine Brovert. The Queen wore a new golden circlet and a girdle of silk that was studded with silver and encrusted with three hundred rubies and eighteen hundred pearls. Together, these items cost thirty-two pounds. In 1311, among precious objects from the King's store delivered into the Queen's wardrobe were three gold brooches, studded with rubies and emeralds, worth forty pounds. On February 2, 1312, the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin Mary, the Queen appeared in a beautiful cloak adorned with fifty gold knots, which were decorative bows or loops. Five hundred silver gilt knots were attached to other garments made for Isabella. The Queen's goldsmiths were Thomas de Westminster and John de Saint Florentino. They made jewellery for her, melted down her old plate and refashioned it anew, and repaired damaged plate and cutlery. When not in use, the Queen's plate, rich robes and other valuables were locked up in great leather strong-boxes and coffers bound with iron, and kept in her treasury or wardrobe, which was housed in a turret in the Tower of London. John de Falaise may have been in charge of this treasury, or at least used it as a workroom, for he was constantly repairing articles found there. Isabella could never be accounted a major political figure in the years prior to 1325, but her surviving household books contain evidence that she worked indefatigably behind the scenes, writing an endless stream of letters on both domestic and political issues, many of them to influential people. For the rest of the time she lived the traditional life of a medieval queen, gracing state and ceremonial occasions, managing her household and estates, bearing heirs to the throne, looking after her financial interests, and dispensing alms and charity. Among several benefactions, as joint overlord of Coventry with the cathedral prior, she gave the ground on which the collegiate church of St. John the Baptist was built, and handsomely endowed it. Like many queens before her, Isabella was patroness of the Royal Hospital of St. Catherine by the Tower of London which had been founded in the 12th century by Matilda of Scotland, wife of Henry I. Above all, Isabella supported her husband. Even though he had done much to forfeit her love and respect, she was exemplary in her devotion and loyalty to Edward, and for this and her many other evident qualities, she earned the respect and love of the barons and people. There can be little doubt that relations between Edward and Isabella improved after Gaveston's death. No longer did she have to compete with a third party for her husband's attentions, nor endure the humiliation of other people's pity. Neither did she have to suffer in silence the usurpation of her high position, which may have hurt her more than being forsaken for another man. Young as she had been during the years of Gaveston's supremacy, she had perhaps thought more of the slights to her pride and her birth rather than to her burgeoning womanhood. Now that she was maturing both physically and mentally, she was perhaps becoming more aware of how Edward had failed her on a personal level and looking to him for more than he had hitherto been prepared or able to give. Later evidence suggests that she was a sensual and even highly sexed woman. Fortunately, for some time to come, Edward would be hers alone, and their marriage much happier and more harmonious, for there is no evidence that he made any effort in the next few years to replace Gaveston. During this period, it might have seemed to onlookers that Isabella had filled the void left by peers. There is no record of any discord between the king and queen during the next decade. Edward treated Isabella with honour and provided very well for her. His wardrobe was responsible for her household finances, and he himself provided the jewels, cloths of gold, and turkey carpets that she gave as gifts and offerings. It was William de Bowden's responsibility to look after them and ensure that they reached the correct recipient. 
The only gift that Isabella paid for herself during her marriage was the gold nugget she offered at the shrine of Becket. Thanks to Edward, she lived in luxury and wanted for nothing in a material sense. Her husband even allowed her to overspend by up to £10,000 each year. With her vast landed assets scattered throughout North Wales and 17 English counties, and her generous income, which would in time be augmented by her dower, she was as great a feudal magnate as any of the earls. Edward seems to have respected and appreciated Isabella's intelligence, good judgment, and loyalty to himself, and he was happy for her to mediate in political affairs from time to time, especially after it became clear that this usually proved beneficial to him. Whenever circumstances found them apart, husband and wife corresponded frequently. Edward's letters were sent under his secret seal, so few survive. The king and queen had also established a sexual relationship, although, as has been postulated, it may have been only occasional. However, if they were not lovers in the truest sense, they at least enjoyed an amicable partnership with shared mutual interests and were supportive of each other. To all intents and purposes, theirs was a successful royal marriage, and in the years to come, Isabella's support would prove invaluable to her husband and win her golden opinions. Chapter 4 His Dearest Companion on February 23, 1313, after much persuasion by Hereford and the papal legates, Lancaster and Warwick at last handed over Gaveston's treasure to the king, which slightly improved relations between Edward and his cousin. But the earl still wanted Gaveston declared a felon, and that Edward would never agree to. On March 1st, Isabella, returning from her pilgrimage, joined the king at Windsor, they left soon afterwards for Westminster, where Parliament met on March 18th. But some of the barons declined to attend, furious that the king was still refusing to recognise that Gaveston's execution amounted to lawful punishment for a felon. Yet Edward could count on at least one loyal supporter. Roger Mortimer was at Westminster at this time, having returned from Ireland in January, and then having spent some weeks in Gascony on the King's affairs. Mortimer would remain at Westminster for much of the year. Philip IV, delighted at news of the birth of his grandson, had no intention of supporting the English barons any further. From now on, his relations with his son-in-law would be far more cordial. In the spring... Isabella must have been delighted when her father sent a messenger, Louis de Clermont, to invite Edward and her to Paris for the ceremonial knighting of her brothers. Her uncle of Evreux and the other French envoys were still in England, and on May 1st, Isabella entertained them to dinner at Westminster. Thereafter, she was busy with preparations for the coming journey. But many of the barons were concerned that the king had decided to leave England at such a critical juncture, what with the Scottish raids and the issues with Lancaster still unresolved. Mindful of these criticisms, Edward protested that both the Pope and King Philip were insisting he make the trip, since there were pressing Gascon affairs to be dealt with. On May 11th, the magnate's party was weakened by the death of that passionate, and inflexible adversary of the king, Archbishop Winchelsea. During Edward's absence abroad, the chapter of Canterbury was due to hold an election to decide his replacement. The king wanted a new primate who would be more loyal to himself and far more accommodating than Winchelsea had been. Edward and Isabella sailed from Dover to France on May 23rd with a splendidly appointed retinue of 220 persons, leaving Gloucester as keeper of the realm. Edward had spent nearly a thousand pounds on his clothes and jewels, 
and doubtless Isabella was royally garbed, too. The royal couple first travelled south to Gascony, being received with very great honour as they passed through the country, and then returned north to Paris, arriving there by June 1st. They lodged at Saint-Germain-des-Prés, to the west of the city. Two days later, on Pentecost Sunday, in a magnificent ceremony, Isabella's three brothers, Louis, Philip and Charles, along with many other young noblemen, were knighted by King Philip. The event was marked by weeks of pageants and feasts, with the two kings and Evreux acting as hosts. Edward's wine bill for the whole visit came to four thousand four hundred and sixty-eight pounds, nineteen shillings and fourpence. For the English king's delight, a morality play was staged, entitled The Glory of the Blessed and the Torments of the Damned. Edward was particularly impressed with the skills of Philip's minstrel, Urel, and rewarded him with forty shillings, two pounds. The visit provided the two kings with an opportunity to discuss business, and Edward found Philip most accommodating over Gascony, and also open-handed when it came to lending money. The fact that Isabella was now the mother of the heir to England and no longer had any rival had something to do with this. But Philip was also keen to underline the diplomatic and dynastic importance of his daughter's marriage. She was mentioned in every document detailing her father's concessions to her husband. During this visit, Philip gave Isabella many gifts. Edward, too, was lavish in his giving. His present bill came to three thousand and sixteen pounds, thirteen shillings and eightpence. On June 6th, both monarchs declared publicly their intentions of going on a crusade to free the Holy Land from the Turks. In token of their vows, they solemnly took the cross from Cardinal Nicholas of St. Eusebius, the papal legate. Carried away by a sudden enthusiasm for the venture, Edward used his persuasions on Isabella, who, on June 13th, herself took the cross at Pontoise, whither Philip had conducted her and Edward three days earlier. It appears, however, that Isabella was not particularly enthusiastic about fulfilling her vow, and neither was her sister-in-law, Jeanne of Burgundy, who had taken the cross with her at her husband Philip's insistence. Isabella had sworn to go on crusade only on condition that she do so in company with her husband— who she probably realised would never make the effort, and that she be not required to donate any more money to the crusade than her own devotion obliged her to offer. While Edward and Isabella were staying at Pontoise, their silken pavilion and all their possessions were destroyed in a fire, and they barely managed to escape with their lives, after fleeing in their nightclothes. This must have been a terrifying experience, and Isabella suffered burns to her hand and arm that took a long time to heal. On July 2nd, Philip accompanied the king and queen to Poissy, a seat of monarchs since the 5th century, with a 12th century church in which St. Louis had been baptised. Edward and Isabella may have lodged in the 11th century royal abbey to the west of the town. After saying farewell to Philip on July 5th, the king and queen travelled towards Visson via Maubisson, Beauvais and Boulogne. They docked at Dover on July 15th, then rode to Westminster. According to two chroniclers, soon after she returned home, Isabella became troubled about the conduct of her sisters-in-law, Marguerite, Blanche and Jeanne of Burgundy. At least... Four chroniclers assert that, during her visit to France, Isabella attended a satirical puppet show given by her brothers, Louis and Charles, and that she afterwards gave silk purses that she had herself embroidered to her sisters-in-law as gifts. In July, 
to celebrate their return home, the king and queen gave a feast at Westminster, which was attended by some knights of the French court who had accompanied the royal couple back to England. Two of the knights were Norman brothers, Philip and Gautier d'Aunay, and Isabella was disconcerted to see hanging from their belts the purses she had given to Marguerite and Blanche. The chroniclers state that she confided her concerns to her father, but she cannot have done so immediately, since nothing was done about the matter until the following May. Probably she kept her suspicions to herself until further proof was forthcoming. After all, the purses could have been given as knightly favours, a practice that was entirely acceptable in courts that took the game of courtly love seriously. And the knights were wearing these favours openly. Much had happened during the king's absence. The monks at Canterbury had elected the well-qualified Thomas Cobham as archbishop, but Edward had decided to push for the appointment of his friend Walter Reynolds and promptly appealed to the Pope to annul the election. And Parliament had assembled at Westminster on July 8th, expecting the King to have returned. By the time he had reached England, the impatient and exasperated barons had dispersed. Meanwhile, Whilst Edward had been squabbling with his barons in England and going on a pleasure jaunt to France, Robert Bruce had been scoring success after success in Scotland. By the summer, Stirling was the only important Scottish castle left in English hands, and Bruce's men had been laying siege to it since October 1312. Fearing that his sovereign would not trouble himself to come to Stirling's defence, the castle's governor reached an agreement with Bruce's brother Edward that if the English had not relieved Stirling by June 24, 1314, he would surrender the castle to the Scots. There was, of course, no guarantee that Edward would go to Stirling's aid. He was more concerned with triumphing over the earls, and there were many to murmur at the king's continuing failure to counteract the advances made by Bruce and put a stop to the savage raids that were terrorising the North. Our king has now reigned six full years and has till now achieved nothing praiseworthy, observed one chronicler succinctly, except that he has married royally and has thereby raised up for himself a handsome son and heir to the throne. Isabella left Westminster on July 26th and went via Henley and Wallingford to Bism, where her baby son was staying, probably in the 13th-century preceptory of the Knights Templar, which had now reverted to the crown. She remained there until August 17th, when she moved to the Benedictine Abbey at Chertsey, renowned for extending hospitality to itinerant royalty. While there, she wrote a most affectionate letter to Edward about her affairs in Ponthieu, which is reported in full here since it gives some interesting insights into her relations with her husband. My very dear and dread Lord, I commend myself to you as humbly as I can. My dear Lord, you have heard how our seneschal and our controller of Ponthieu have come from Ponthieu concerning our affairs. The letters they had to bring can remain in the state they are at present until the Parliament, except one, which will concern your inheritance in Ponthieu and the Count of Dreux, which should be acted upon immediately in order to keep and maintain your inheritance. I beg you, my gentle Lord, that by this message it may please you to request your Chancellor by letter that he summon those of your counsel to him and take steps speedily in this matter, according to what he and your said counsel see what is best to do for your honour and profit. For if action is not speedily taken, this will do you great harm and be of much benefit to the said Count, your enemy, as I have truly heard by my counsel. May the Holy Spirit keep you, my very dear and dread Lord. Given at Chertsey, 11 August.
This letter shows that the Queen had her finger on the pulse of affairs and was able to prioritize matters of urgency and could use her political judgment shrewdly and to her husband's advantage. There is also a suggestion that she was rather bossy and dictatorial and accustomed privately to giving Edward advice for his honor and profit. It appears, too, that he had come to rely on it. Furthermore, we may deduce that Isabella was far more quick-witted than he, and a stronger and more forceful character, as events would indeed prove. The Queen stayed at Chertsey for some weeks before returning to London in September. Even then, the King and the Barons had still not reached a lasting concord, and on August 28th, Edward had asked Philip IV to send Evreux back to England to act as a mediator. In September, the earls met in London and appealed to the king to remit his rancor towards them. He did not immediately yield, but dragged out the business as usual. During the Parliament that met on September 23rd and sat until November 15th, Evreux, Gloucester and the representatives of the Pope all did their best to forge a peace. In October, news came from Avignon that Thomas Cobham's election had been quashed and that the Pope had appointed the King's own candidate, Walter Reynolds, as Archbishop of Canterbury. The chroniclers of the day were in little doubt that the sin of simony had been committed. My Lady Money transacts all business in the Curia, and sneered at the new archbishop for being a mere clerk and scarcely literate, which may be an exaggeration. But however his preferment had been achieved, Edward now had what he wanted, an ally in Canterbury which considerably strengthened his support. On October 13th, perhaps at the insistence of Evreux or Gloucester, Isabella herself became a mediator between her husband and his barons, urging the latter publicly to crave the king's forgiveness for Gaveston's murder. The queen anxiously interceded, striving to calm the feelings of both parties and strenuously attempting to make peace. It was this, as well as the prayers of Cardinal Arnaud and Evreux, that finally helped to bring about an agreement. The next day, Isabella was present at a formal ceremony of reconciliation in Westminster Hall, in which Lancaster, Warwick and Hereford knelt before Edward in submission. Then he gave them the kiss of peace and told them that their pardons and those of five hundred of their supporters had been granted through the prayers of his dearest companion, Isabella, Queen of England. On October 15th, the King confirmed the pardons by his letters patent, and soon afterwards he rescinded the ordinance censuring the Bowmans. The reconciliation was marked by two banquets, one given by Edward, the other by Lancaster. But this display of amity was little more than a veneer, Behind the masks of courtesy, the two men were still determined to destroy each other. At this time, Isabella was suffering from an infirmity of the hand and arm, probably caused by burns sustained during the fire at Pontoise, which may have become infected. While staying at Westminster, she was attended by two English physicians, as well as two French ones sent by her father, on their instructions, her apothecary, Peter of Montpellier, made up some herbal plasters and a lotion of rose water and olive oil, which he mixed on a lead plate. During November and December, her second apothecary, Master Audinet, treated the Queen with ointments, more plasters and enemas. Isabella's illness must have incapacitated her for a time. The King, Doubtless impressed with her diplomatic and successful intervention in his negotiations with the magnates, had intended to send her to the Paris Parlement on November 19th to put forward his case in a dispute over Gascony, 
but her injuries were so painful that she was unable to travel, and her visit had to be postponed. Her sufferings were such that on November 18th, she sent an offering to the Shrine of St. Thomas at Canterbury. She had meant to go in person on her way to France, but had had to postpone it because of her infirmity. The fact that Isabella was to be treated for her injuries for at least the next two years suggests that they were quite serious. She did, however, send a letter interceding with her father on behalf of her husband's nephew Edward, Count of Bar, who had been wrongfully imprisoned by the Duke of Lorraine, one of Philip's vassals. The Count was released the following June. The Queen also wrote to King Philip and many other French lords on December 8th. These letters may well have been connected to the short trip that Edward himself made to France on December 12th, which purported to be a pilgrimage, but was doubtless to discuss difficulties over Gascony with Philip. Nothing much is known about this meeting, which took place at Montreuil, but matters were probably not resolved when the King returned to England on the 20th. He and the Queen spent Christmas at Westminster, then went to Eltham for the new year. Late in 1313, the King had belatedly resolved to mount a military campaign to relieve Stirling, and in January 1314 he began assembling a mighty army. He was in a strong position now, and a victory in Scotland would go further than anything to cement his peace with the barons. When he returned home in triumph, they would be able to gainsay him nothing. Isabella's hand was now presumably better, because in the middle of January she resumed her preparations for a visit to France and sent William de Bowden to the council in London to ask for money to defray her expenses. At the council's request, the king's banker, Antonio di Pesano, paid to the queen £3,995 plus £948.13 shillings to defray her travelling costs. The king's councillors, aware of her influence with her father and impressed by her efforts at peacemaking, had themselves urged Edward to send her at this time to present his case at the imminent Paris Parlement in the hope that King Philip would be unable to resist the pleas of his beloved daughter. Ostensibly, the reason for Isabella's journey would be her desire to undertake a private pilgrimage to the shrines at Boulogne, Amiens, Chartres and other places in France. Nevertheless, she would go in great state, as the Queen and official emissary she was. In February the Earl of Surrey was forced to surrender the High Peak to the Queen, and from March onwards, Edward arranged for Isabella to be endowed with a greater permanent source of income, since her future dower was still in Queen Marguerite's hands. In order to do this, he borrowed heavily from Genoese bankers, who virtually supported Isabella's household for an entire year. Before she went to France, Isabella accompanied the king to the enthronement of Archbishop Reynolds in Canterbury Cathedral. They left Eltham on February 10th and arrived in Canterbury on the 15th. The impressive ceremony took place two days later. The royal couple had returned to London by February 23rd, where, on the 26th, the king commissioned Gloucester, Henry de Beaumont, William Ing and Bartholomew de Badlesmere a Kentish baron, to accompany the Queen to France and help safeguard his French interests. Since January, Isabella had been receiving briefings from William Ing and one from Thomas de Cambridge, who were both very knowledgeable about Gascon affairs. Isabella and her advisers immediately travelled south to Sandwich, where they boarded a magnificent vessel under the command of William de Montacute. It had been hired by Antonio di Pisano, along with 26 other ships and 13 barges for the Queen's household. The flotilla sailed for France on February 28th and landed at Visson on March 1st. Isabella de Vessi, 
Eleanor Le Dispenser and the Countess of Surrey were among Isabella's entourage. She also took with her a team of fifteen greyhounds, intending to enjoy some hunting during her visit. A man was paid to look after them on the journey. As soon as she landed, Isabella dispatched a messenger to Edward with a letter from her informing him of her safe arrival. Journeying through her county of Pontieu, she came first to Boulogne, where on March 3rd she prayed at the Shrine of Our Lady in the cathedral where she had been married. The next day saw her at Montreuil, and the day after that at the village of Crécy-en-Pontieu. On March 6th she reached Saint-Riquier, where she made her devotions in the beautiful abbey church of the Benedictines, which dated from the 7th century. And on the 7th and 8th she stayed at Amiens, on the banks of the Somme, where she made an offering at the shrine of Saint-Firmin in the city's great cathedral. Travelling southwards, Isabella reached Poix de Picardie on March 9th, before proceeding through Normandy and visiting Gerbrois, Neufmarché, Gisors, Chars and Pontoise. The Queen entered Paris on March 16th and took up residence at Saint-Germain-des-Prés, where she had stayed with Edward the previous year. As soon as she arrived, she visited the nearby Benedictine Abbey and made an offering. During her stay in Paris, she made her devotions in several churches and sent offerings to other holy places, notably the shrines of St. James at Compostela in Spain and St. Brieux in Brittany. On the night before Isabella arrived in Paris, King Philip and his court had witnessed the burning of her godfather, Jacques de Molay, last Grand Master of the Knights Templar, and his associate, Geoffrey de Charny. The executions took place on the Ile de la Seine in Paris. As Molay was slowly consumed in the fire, he famously cursed King Philip and his descendants to the thirteenth generation and summoned him and Pope Clement to meet him at God's tribunal before the year was out. This chilling event must have overshadowed Isabella's reunion with her father. Soon after arriving in Paris, not only as Queen of England, but also as a humble daughter, Isabella presented seven petitions on the subject of Gascony to Philip IV on behalf of her husband and asked him to respond favourably and graciously to them, so that the land would gain profit and Philip honour, and she would be able to return more happily to her lord. It's made clear in the roles of the Parlement that it was her personal intervention that prompted King Philip to grant most of her petitions and hold others over for further consideration. However, his refusal of the rest shows that he was not so besotted a father that he would prejudice his own interests. Isabella's initial success paved the way for further negotiations to be entered into by Edward's commissioners, in which the Queen was not directly involved, although, of course, she may have tried to influence her father in private. It was not her fault that some of these negotiations ultimately ended in failure or stalemate. On March 18th, Isabella wrote another letter to her husband, presumably concerning Philip's reception of her petitions. The next day, resuming her pilgrimage, she left Saint-Germain for Palaiso, southeast of Versailles, and the following day arrived at Saint-Arnoux-en-Yvelines. Leaving the greater part of her retinue in the fortified town of Galardon, in its great priory, from the 21st to the 24th of March, she and a few attendants visited Chartres Cathedral and then moved south to make offerings to the image of the Virgin in the Basilica at Clary-Saint-André on the Loire. At each shrine she visited, Isabella presented gifts of rich cloths. She also paused on her travels to purchase a fur and a hanging embroidered with pictures of baboons. The Queen was back at Saint-Arnoux on March 24th and moved to Longpont-sur-Orge the next day, 
she sent more letters to King Edward and to several English magnates on March 27th and had returned to Paris by March 30th. This time she lodged at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, staying in the favoured summer residence of the kings of France set in the vast forest of Saint-Germain, a royal hunting ground for centuries. Here she remained until April 16th. During this period, she made frequent visits to her father, who was staying at his palace of the Cité in Paris. On April 6th, money was paid to ten torchbearers who lit her way each evening from Saint-Germain. On April 11th, in gratitude for the good work she had done, Edward made a generous award to Isabella and confirmed to her the reversion of the dower held by Queen Marguerite. On April 16th, Isabella left Paris for Ponthieu. That night, she stayed at Boissy-Lellery, near Pontoise. Here, she wrote to Edward, announcing that she was making her way back to England. But she was back in Paris on the 18th to reimburse Elias de Johnstone, who'd travelled to France in January, to assist her with her mission. Her household waited for her at Bonvillers, where she rejoined it the next day. On that same April 18th, as if in fulfilment of Jacques de Molay's curse, the Pope died. It was a superstitious age, and on hearing the news, Isabella may well have remembered that curse and feared that she had said farewell to her father for the last time. The Queen now revisited her own domains. She was at Poix-de-Picardie on April 20th, Eren on April 21st, and Abbeville on April 23rd, where she entertained her brother Charles and her uncle Charles of Valois. The next day, she sent letters, which may have concerned a matter of dreadful significance, as will shortly become clear, to King Philip, Louis of Navarre, and other lords and ladies of France. Three days later, having ridden north via Montreuil and Boulogne, she arrived back at Visson and took ship for England. On landing at Dover, she was given the strange gift of a porcupine, which was doubtless sent straight to the royal menagerie in the tower. In May, payment was made for apples for it, but it's not mentioned again and may have died soon afterwards. Isabella now rode to the shrine of St. Thomas at Canterbury, where she made an offering. Was she just giving thanks for her safe return and the partial success of her mission, or was she praying for her father's preservation? Or did she have something darker on her mind that prompted the need for spiritual comfort? The likelihood is that Isabella came home greatly disturbed. For in April, scandal and tragedy had hit the French royal family, and she herself, perhaps, had been involved with it. They called it the affair of the Tour de Nelle, for it was in that tower in Paris, on the banks of the Seine, that Marguerite and Blanche of Burgundy had been whining, dining, and carrying on adulterous affairs with the brothers Donnet. Their sister-in-law, Jeanne, had been a witness and had pleaded with them to desist, but had not thought fit to reveal their treason. As we have seen, Isabella had already been nursing her own concerns about these young people. According to the chroniclers, prompted by her observation of their suspicious behaviour, she now informed her father of what she had seen the year before. Some go as far as to say that she was one of the chief witnesses against her sisters-in-law. There's no reason to disbelieve this, despite much of the evidence coming from later chronicles. For all the embroideries and inaccuracies in some accounts, there is a certain consistency in what they say. Isabella was indeed in Paris at the time the affair was brought to light, and had ample opportunity to make her suspicions known, and to testify against her sisters-in-law. 
The Exchequer records show that she was having prolonged private discussions with her father. And it's likely that it was during the course of these that she made her accusations. After she left Paris for the first time on March 19th, she wrote three letters to her brother, Louis of Navarre, from Palaisot, Chartres and Galadon. And as we have seen, she kept in touch with her father, uncle and brothers after her departure. Writing around 1317, the French chronicler Geoffrey de Paris states that through Isabella, many things were disclosed and revealed in France to our royals, which were proved and found true by many people. He does not say what these revelations were, but there's little else they could relate to other than the Tour de Nel affair. Furthermore, it was generally rumoured among the common people that Isabella had revealed the affair to the king, although there were many who didn't believe that. Adultery in a queen, or the wife to the heir to the throne, placed the royal succession in grave jeopardy. And any man committing adultery with such royal ladies was guilty of treason. Philip had the five suspects watched for a period, then ordered an immediate inquiry. When it found against the lovers, his vengeance was terrible. All were arrested. The Salacronica states that one of the knights fled to England but was recaptured and sent back to face his fate. After merciless torture, the Dornay brothers confessed to their crimes and were condemned to death. In a trial held in camera before the Paris Parlement in April, Marguerite and Blanche also admitted their guilt. In May, both were sentenced to life imprisonment. Marguerite's marriage to Louis of Navarre was immediately annulled. It had never been very happy, anyway, for he had often neglected his feisty and shapely wife to play tennis, for which he felt more passion. So it was unsurprising that she had looked elsewhere for love. Now, weeping constantly with remorse, she was made to wear the cowled garb of a penitent, and her hair was symbolically shorn. Then she was shut up in a dark, damp dungeon in Chateau Gaillard in Normandy, a grim fortress built in the late twelfth century by Richard the Lionhearted. Here she appears to have been subjected to a regime of systematic ill-treatment. Her two-year-old daughter, Jeanne, her only surviving child, was disinherited on suspicion that Louis was not her father, a suspicion that was probably unjustified, since Marguerite's adulterous liaison doesn't appear to have begun until after Jeanne's birth in 1311. Blanche of Burgundy also had her head shaved and was immured in Chateau Gaillard, in a cell below ground. Yet, despite the pleas of her husband Charles, the Pope refused to annul their marriage. Ten years later, after Blanche had borne a bastard child to her jailer, the Pope proved more cooperative, and she was allowed to take the veil at the Abbey of Maubisson. But her health had been broken by the severity of her imprisonment, and she died a year later, in 1326. Prince Philip did not repudiate his wife, Jeanne of Burgundy, because he believed her innocent of adultery. But, despite having been acquitted by the Paris Parlement, she was kept under house arrest at Dordogne for some months as a punishment for not having revealed what had been going on. However, she was treated with far more leniency and respect than Marguerite and Blanche, and in 1315 was received back at court. Later, she bore her husband two more children. The unfortunate Dornay brothers fared far worse. After being publicly castrated, with their genitals thrown to the dogs, they were partially flayed alive before being broken on the wheel and then mercifully decapitated at Montfaucon in Paris 
Afterwards, their broken bodies were displayed on gibbets. If Isabella felt any remorse for the dreadful fate of these stupid, promiscuous girls and their lovers, there's no record of it. And if she had given evidence against them, she doubtless would have accounted it a signal service to the House of Capet, for no bastard strain could be allowed to pollute such a sacred royal bloodline. It has been suggested that she was at the centre of a plot to discredit the issue of her brothers, so that her son could in time succeed to the French throne, which is stretching credibility rather too far, since the French princes were young men who could easily remarry and have other heirs. Nor is there any evidence that there was any such plot. Isabella went to France at Edward II's behest, not with the purpose of denouncing her sisters-in-law. Furthermore, the Chronicum Committum Flandriae asserts that the accusations against the princesses and their knights were without cause, and that they'd all been framed by Philip's chief counsellor, Enguerrand de Marigny. But we know that the king placed the lovers under surveillance, and it seems that the guilty lovers were all condemned on good evidence. King Philip would hardly have allowed the French crown to be tainted by such a scandal without sufficient justification. Isabella's actions argue a certain ruthlessness in her nature, which, given that she was the daughter of Philip IV, was perhaps only to be expected. They also provoked a backlash, at least in France, where she was vilified for betraying her sisters-in-law, and for a time this had a detectable effect on diplomatic relations with England. Edward II's preparation for his campaign against the Scots were now complete, and on June 10th an immense English army assembled at Wark in Northumberland. The next day it marched for Berwick. Pembroke and Mortimer were among those who attended on the king, although Lancaster, Warwick, Arundel and Surrey had also been summoned, all were conspicuous by their absence, which they were to justify on the grounds that the king had gone to war without the consent of Parliament, and thus disregarded the ordinances. On arriving in London, after her return from France, Isabella had obtained her travelling expenses and immediately ridden north to join her husband. Passing through Doncaster, Pontefract and Boroughbridge, she arrived at Berwick on June 14th and was lodged in the castle, which had been heavily fortified by Edward I. She was involved to a degree in the preparations for the campaign and lent Gloucester equipment for his field kitchen. It was never returned. On June 17th, the great army marched forth from Berwick. Five days later, it reached Falkirk. Robert Bruce was ready and waiting for the English, his forces drawn up before Stirling at a place called Bannockburn. There the two armies met. Bruce was heavily outnumbered. He had 7,000 men and Edward had 20,000 but he knew the terrain and had deliberately chosen a site surrounded by boggy ground and, in the enclosed area, had dug concealed pits, which were to prove lethal to the invading army. The battle was fought over two days, on the 23rd and 24th of June, and its outcome was a devastating defeat for the English. The young Earl of Gloucester was among 4,000 killed, Hereford was captured, and King Edward, despite having fought like a lion, was forced to flee the field. With the aid of Dispenser, he made his way home by stealth via Dunbar and Berwick, having left all his possessions, including his seal, behind. Chivalrously, the victorious Bruce sent them after him. Isabella was waiting at Berwick when her husband returned, crushed, angry, and humiliated. She was supportive, lending him her seal to replace the one he had abandoned, and supervising the cleaning of his armour. She also bought clothes for three knights, who had lost everything when they fled the battlefield. 
and she later secured the release of a royal messenger, Robert Le Messager, who was imprisoned after Bannockburn for speaking irreverent and indecent words about his sovereign. He had said, It was no wonder the king couldn't win a battle, because he had spent the time when he should have been hearing mass in idling, ditching, digging, and other improper occupations. Isabella persuaded Archbishop Reynolds to stand surety for the man's good behaviour. Presumably, she'd had the wisdom to realise that he'd been punished only for uttering sentiments that most people were thinking or saying in private. The dreadful import of the defeat is reflected in the words of the author of the Vita Eduardi Secundi. Oh, day of vengeance and disaster, day of utter loss and shame, evil and accursed day, not to be reckoned in our calendar. Bannockburn was a disaster for Edward in many ways. It effectively ended England's hopes of ever establishing political supremacy over Scotland. It essentially secured Bruce's crown and Scotland's independence. It left the north of England more vulnerable than ever to Scottish raids and protection rackets. And it also shattered Edward II's credibility with his barons and put Lancaster in an impregnable position, determined to enforce the ordinances. Almost immediately, the Lord's Ordainers gathered in York, where the disgraced king faced his parliament in September. Isabella also attended, no doubt dismayed and shamed by her husband's humiliation. Stiff-faced, they sat there, king and queen, as Lancaster blamed England's defeat on the king's failure to observe the ordinances, refused to heed Edward's demands to press on with the war, and demanded a purge of the royal household and the administration that would lead to the expenses of the king's household being cut to ten pounds per day. And Edward was forced to capitulate. He refused nothing to the earls. There was no redress, for it was clear that from now on it was to be Lancaster and not Edward who ruled England. Edward would be merely a cipher, a puppet in Lancaster's hands. Isabella, staunch as ever, supported her husband. There was now every reason for Lancaster to regard her as an enemy. She had been close to Gloucester, with whom he had fallen out, and she had continued to befriend the Bowmans, whom he hated, and had welcomed them back to court after their dismissal by the ordainers. In soliciting pardons without reference to Parliament, she had ignored the provisions of the ordinances. Moreover, she was influential with her father, who had already sent lawyers to help Edward circumvent the ordinances. In retaliation, Lancaster saw to it that Isabella's revenues were drastically cut. This slump is evident in the records of her finances between October 1314 and March 1316. Fortunately, the king was able to supplement her reduced income by small grants from his own wardrobe. Lancaster's spite may not have been the only reason for the cuts, for the weather was now mirroring the political situation. During the late summer and autumn, there were torrential rains that led to a ruined harvest, which heralded the great famine that was to ravage Europe over the next two years. Then Isabella, back at Westminster, received the sad news of the death of her father, King Philip, who died on November 29th at Fontainebleau, cut down by a stroke whilst out hunting. Now it truly seemed to many that the Grand Master's curse had been fulfilled, for both the Pope and the King of France had died before the year was out. And given the dynastic scandal that had overtaken Philip's sons, it's hardly surprising that he and they quickly became known as les rois maudits, the accursed kings. As for Philip's daughter, it may very well have seemed to her at this time that the curse extended to both her and her husband as Philip's daughter and son-in-law. 
Philip IV was succeeded by his eldest son, who became Louis X and was nicknamed Le Hutin, which has been variously translated as the stubborn, the quarrelsome, or the headstrong. With his queen in prison and his daughter disinherited, he didn't enjoy an auspicious start to his reign. He was a somewhat frivolous young man with little interest in government, and the real ruler of France during his reign was his uncle Charles of Valois. In Avignon also there was change with the election of a new pope, the shrewd and clever John the Twenty-Second, who was to play an influential role in Isabella's life during the years to come. In December 1314, to mark his election, the Queen sent him two copes that had been embroidered with coral and large pearls by Rose de Burford, the wife of a London merchant. They were purchased through an intermediary called Catherine Lincoln. Through her armourer, Isabella also sent the Pope an incense boat, a ewer, and a gold buckle set with pearls and precious stones. These three gifts cost three hundred pounds, which the king paid. This ends disc five. Queen Isabella, disc six. By now, Edward had been successful in his bid to have the ban of excommunication on Piers Gaveston overturned by the Pope. And on January second, thirteen fifteen, he had the corpse of his late lamented intimate.